Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT podcast. Your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Did you know that in the last two years, AAMFT's Practice Protection Fund has supported critical work, protecting and advancing the MFT profession in almost a third of the U.S.? From getting MFTs the right to diagnose to advancing licensure parity with other mental health disciplines, as well as expanding MFT coverage for Medicaid recipients, the PPF has been there to support the growth of the MFT profession. However, only 22% of licensed MFTs in the United States contribute to this vital fund. Please text PPF to 53-555 or visit aamft.org PPF today to help keep this vital work going. Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast, our final installment of 2022. So we'll take a brief hiatus, come back for our fifth season in January 2023. And we are ending the year in a big way as we strive to relate, educate, innovate one episode at a time, mixing hot topics in the world of systemic therapy with the movers and the shakers and the legends, what we call the Pioneer Series. We're ending the year with uh, a woman certainly you've heard of and read up in your textbook coined the term ambiguous loss. I'm talking no other than Dr. Pauline Boss. Over the course of her illustrious career, Dr. Boss has worked with families in New York who lost significant others during 9-11, families in Kosovo who've lost their members, the result of ethnic cleansing and terrorism. She's even done some consulting to Ukraine as of late. She's worked with families who have psychologically lost a relative as a result of Alzheimer's or other chronic mental illnesses. Dr. Boss draws on her research and that of others in her over 40 years of clinical practice, a true scientist practitioner. She has a powerful yet flexible therapeutic approach described in her ambiguous loss writing. And we'll talk about that today, including six guidelines uh, therapists and clients can use to find new hope and meaning in their lives. And at this time, the ambiguous loss model is updated, is being used to ease the pain and trauma of various kinds of ambiguous losses across different cultures, including what we all have gone through in the last couple of years with COVID-19 and a worldwide pandemic. Pauline received her PhD in child development and family studies from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1975. From 75 to 81, she was an assistant and then associate professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. In 81, she joined the Department of Family Social Science at the University of Minnesota 
and continued there as a full professor until 2005, where she became an emeritus professor. Also in 1995, she was appointed a visiting professor to Harvard Medical School. And in 2005, she was awarded the Moses Distinguished Professor at the Hunter School of Social Work in New York City. Her most famous book, Ambiguous Loss, Learning to Live with Unresolved Grief, introduced the phenomenon of ambiguous loss to a more general audience and has been translated into six foreign languages. Wow, I was so fortunate to have a conversation with this living legend, and I hope you will enjoy it too. We will have the interview after a word from our sponsor. In 2022, the AAMFT asked MFTs across the U.S. to participate in a vital workforce study to determine how the COVID-19 pandemic had shifted our field and what impacts it may have on the future of our practice. That research showed that we are a growing and diverse profession, highly in demand for our services, more adept at technology and probably more adaptable than we ever imagined we could be but we are also stretched to our limits, facing out-of-date regulations and financial pressures. And as an industry, we are particularly vulnerable position as we look to maintain the growth and to continue to protect our unique identity as systemic therapists. Please find out more by going to aamft.org slash workforce study. Eli, back on the AAMFT podcast. I am so delighted to be speaking today to a pioneer in the field of family studies, family therapy, family loss and stress, Pauline Boss. And we have never met face-to-face, -face, but the great thing about this podcast is I get to meet people I have admired, even if virtually. So this was on my list through the Pioneer series and not be complete without talking to Dr. Pauline Boss, who is not shy about most people, they don't want to talk about their age. Pauline, that is not you. Tell us how old you are, since you're not shy about that. And then if you've ever listened to the show, the, your origin story, you have a, quite a tremendous story. How, how did growing up in a first-generation Swiss-American immigrant family in Wisconsin influence your career trajectory? Oh, thank you, Eli. Yes, I just turned 88 and, and I'm still working, but I'm hoping to pass the teaching and the training of ambiguous loss on to new generations. So I, I encourage people, younger scholars, younger family therapists and social workers, etc., to continue the teaching of ambiguous loss. How did I get on? There are two answers to the question, really. The first one is that I was a rebel housewife in New Glarus, Wisconsin, a Swiss-American village. And the University of Wisconsin was a half hour north, or 40 minutes north. And I had parents who were eager to babysit. So I headed north to the University of Wisconsin got a bachelor's, master's, doctorate, and eventually tenure as a faculty member. I always was interested in the family, so I, my studies were always family-focused. I became a family life educator. And then uh, I noticed that Carl Whitaker took in independent studies students in Madison. And so I signed up for it, but in fact, he put me in with the psychiatric residents 
that year because there were no women in psychiatry at the time. And I told him I just wanted to learn how to teach about families. And he said, just come here and, and watch. So I was observing in his family therapy clinic for residents, and I got hooked. And then it was that I noticed that when he had families come in, the fathers were always angry. Now, this was the 1970s when fathers were to earn a living and mothers were to take care of children. And Carl, of course, just ignored them because he wanted the whole family there. But as a graduate student, I wrote my first paper that got published. It was Psychological Father Absence in Tech Families. However, at the same time, I was studying in sociology on the University of Wisconsin campus. And my professor said, Pauline, it's about more than fathers. And so it took me a while, but eventually I came up with the term ambiguous loss. The rest is history. But the second answer to the question is that I grew up in a family of immigrants, and they were always pining for the home across the ocean, in this case in Switzerland. And I think as a small child, I absorbed that homesickness, or what I now call ambiguous loss, that is evident in almost all immigrants, and it was especially so in my father and my grandmother. I'm going to ask you more about your family of origin as we go on, but the Carl Whitaker connection on the show, we've had lots of first and second generation family therapists talk about the pioneers and especially Carl Whitaker, who was a character. There's not really another Carl Whitaker. What did you learn from him? Some of the Carl Whitaker stuff doesn't age as well as our other classic theories or personalities, but he was certainly a character. What did you learn from your time with Carl Whitaker? Yes, he was a character, he, and he did fall asleep in therapy, and I was a graduate student as his co-therapist and didn't know what to do. When I learned from him, I could tell stories for an hour, but when I learned from him specifically was spontaneity, flexibility to embrace the paradox to embrace ambiguity and to not have a planned strategy all the time, ahead of time. That all ran counter to my Swiss-American upbringing, which was based on precision and planning, etc., as you might know, the stereotype. So he really helped me. I consider him my left-brain mentor, and he never ever lacked in support for my graduate student papers on ambiguous loss. He was a cheerleader from the start. Crazy, yes, and often perplexing. But wow, I changed and I learned. You, like many, once you formed an alliance with him, it will allow him to push both his clients and his students in a way that uh, probably only he could do, but it is wonderful. And we could, yes, do a whole another show, probably you talking about Carl Whitaker stories. Now, anybody that's ever had an introductory family studies class or even an introductory psychology class, you have seen the term ambiguous loss, which Pauline coined, as we said here in the 70s. So for our, our newer listeners that might not know, talk uh, as you originally formulated the two types of ambiguous loss. Yes, ambiguous loss just basically means an unclear loss, a loss without a death certificate, a loss without any verification. So it's an uncertain and unclear loss. There are two types. 
the first type of ambiguous loss is physical. And that is when the person is physically missing but kept psychologically present because the family doesn't know if they're dead or alive, coming back or never returning. Extreme examples, of course, would be you're seeing it right now in Ukraine with missing family members. You see it with kidnappings and so on. But more ordinary examples of physical ambiguous loss are divorce and adoption and family alienation. The second type of ambiguous loss is psychological, and that's where the person is physically present but psychologically absent. They're there in front of you, but they may not know you. And the example there, families where there is dementia or severe brain injury and so on. And more common examples might be Families where everybody has their head in their phone, and they're together, but they're not together. They're psychologically absent. Those are the two kinds, and the research has pretty much spread out on the types of physical and psychological ambiguous losses that are being studied. Today, for example, families where one of the children is transitioning have used the model, and it is being used around the world. The research is now out of my hands long ago, and they are studying it across cultures, for which I am delighted. You take what's also a very micro phenomenon within the family system of English loss to this more macro societal level in your new book that we'll mention. And certainly it's been updated through world events, just like the pandemic has given new meaning to ambiguous loss. More on that in your current work as we go on. But I've heard people refer to you as a grief expert, and you don't like that. You would rather focus on family stress and loss. But tell us how the grief involved in ambiguous loss is different from traditional grief. Because I think this is a concept, not just that therapists, but also our clients, people resonate with this term. It's so good because it says what it is, but it is different in traditional yes. grief. Yes. Um, no, I've never done research on grief, so I can't consider myself a grief expert. There are plenty of those. But nobody before had studied the nuances of loss. And that came out of my family stress book early on, family stress management and so on. Various different kinds of losses, volitional, non-volitional, long-term, short-term ambiguous or clear. So the difference between an ambiguous loss and an ordinary loss regarding grief is that the grief is frozen. And so in my first book about ambiguous loss by Harvard Press, 1999-2000 paperback, the subtitle is about frozen grief. And that's the term I've used. But today, people use complicated grief and long-term grief. There are other labels for it. And unfortunately, the labels reflect a disorder. And I'm making the point that with ambiguous loss, the symptoms that people have are a result of the context, a pathological context, not their own pathology. And that ambiguity in the context of your loss is something that will create ongoing grief, perhaps for a lifetime, perhaps across generations, because there's no certainty of that started with the Civil War. On down, it started with the genocides that started our country with the Native Americans. We have a history in our culture 
of much unresolved loss that has created passing down of this trauma across the generations. And perhaps it's why we don't like to have people grieving around us. We want them to get over it. We want them to have closure because we aren't good at witnessing suffering. And while I believe that we are a wonderful culture in mastering situations and finding answers, for heaven's sakes, we now have the web camera out in outer space farther than men has ever gone before. That requires mastery and precision. We aren't very good at problems that have no solution, and loss is one of them. Oddly enough, loss is a seminar that you rarely see at a conference. It's rarely seen in indexes of psychology books. It's something we don't like to talk about. We like winners. We don't like losers. We like gain. We don't like loss. And my point is that as culture, we have to face it. And the pandemic forced us to because it was global and all around us. But here's the thing. The pathology lies in a context of not knowing, and it should not be called a disorder for the people who are experiencing it. Yes, said so much there, so let's unpack that. First of all, people pick MFT as a profession because it is focused on strength and health, and it does not pathologize. It looks for resilience even in the most constraints of systems. So I love that you have framed ambiguous loss as relational issue that is not this finite stage. It is something that you cope with and live with rather than individuals of psychopathology. Because I do think we have a hard time sitting with people in their grief or loss. And that's probably, as you said, why it is minimized in a lot of therapist training and in a lot of the books. But if we normalize that and we understand that it is something you live with. It helps everybody. And the thing is, we're never done with a loss and grief. It just gets milder as time goes on. But there is no timeline in, anymore. But we should find some meaning in it in order to live with it. Yeah, probably why I got into this field. I lost my father when I was 18 and I'm 45 now. I think about him every day. The way I cope is different, but I'm certainly dealing with that every day. So you have done a good job of, again, depathologizing this process, which I think is why your work has endured and adapted. I believe you've also always thought that way. The other thing you do and what makes you credible, in addition to your storied career as an academic, as a researcher, is a sharing of your own journey. And people listen to this podcast because they want to hear the person behind the model. Your theory is excellent, but they just don't want to hear theory. So your story is amazing. So I don't know whether we talk about your experience with your parents as immigrants, caring for your aging parents, your own recent loss of your spouse. I want to know your own journey and how you have personalized that and how that makes your work even more relevant. Yes, I've had a lot of loss in my life, but perhaps I come from a culture that's quite pragmatic. They're not very emotionally expressive, Swiss Americans, but we are pragmatic. And we know that loss is a universal for it. Every one of us, we will have losses, if only it may be our parents who precede us in debt. My first loss was 
from another kind of pandemic. It was called epidemic then in the 1950s. It was the polio epidemic when I lost my little brother at age 13, whom I had been a junior mother for. He went to Boy Scout camp, was swimming, and came home and fell ill with polio. He played junior high football one Friday night, and he died the next. It was bulbar polio, which was lethal at that time. I thought I would never be happy again, and yet as time went on, you are, if you don't fight it. So, I've never fought my own grief when it comes up. And by the way, after the divorce, it was exceedingly hard because I also left my hometown at the same time to come to the University of Minnesota. So I'd lost friends. I lost my hometown, my extended family, who was very near to me. And I lost who I was, my identity. I was no longer a wife. It took me a long time to settle in and to become acquainted with my new self, actually. Fortunately, I had new friends almost immediately when I came to town, to Minneapolis, which supported me greatly. And I've always thought that in order to live with loss, which is inevitable over time, we have to have a social support system, and we need some relationships. And so I've always thought about the resilience for living with loss and sadness that continues over time. The cure for clinical depression is sometimes medical and sometimes pharmaceutical. But the cure for sadness, which is the majority of people who have loss, have sadness about it over time. You described that about your father. It pops up every now and then, even though you're not aware that it will. The help for sadness is human connection. Peer groups are exceedingly helpful. A loss is a relational thing, so why not have a relational intervention? Family therapy, couples therapy, peer groups. I was just talking with the Ukrainian therapist who contacted me because grief therapy wasn't working, and indeed it will not work with people who have missing loved ones. They'll get very angry at you for using grief therapy. So they're using ambiguous loss therapy now, and I said to them, individual therapy with your amount of loss, there won't be enough therapists to go around. So begin to form psychological families, have peer groups, of people because there's so many who need help right now. And they pivoted almost immediately and a week later had a plan for six sessions for groups of people with missing loved ones. In extraordinary situations, that's how you might do it. In the more ordinary situations, if you see an individual therapist, the relationship, the transference is with that therapist. Problem is, though, especially when there's trauma involved, like large-scale disasters, 9-11, Fukushima, no, Ukraine, is there aren't enough therapists to go around. And furthermore, the professional goes home eventually. So our job as a relational therapist is to connect the people to someone else who they continue to have commonalities with, and they can support each other once the individual therapist goes home. And that was a very parallel process for you. You talking about your own transitions, that what made you a survivor and resilient, not only were you 
writing and building an academic career around this. You were the living embodiment, being connected to new communities and new resources. What I like about you is this very congruent. Sometimes people that are really notable names and legends in the field, they write in a way that's not congruent to their life. So there is a certain congruence about you that I think is another thing that has made your work so enduring. You mentioned some of these types of ambiguous loss that MFTs will come in contact with a lot. Maybe you have some thoughts on each one of them, because we see many times couple and family therapists work with lots of caregivers that are working with a loved one that has dementia, and that is such a burden on them, and they feel exhausted, cut off, especially if the person they're caring for is a spouse or a parent who used to take care of them. What are your thoughts on working with caregivers that are taking care of I someone with dementia? I feel very strongly about that and wrote the book, Loving Someone Who Has Dementia. Before I was a caregiver, oddly enough, just from clinical observations, I had to reread it when I became a caregiver. And by the way, it was easier to write the book than to do it. Caregivers die at a rate 63% higher than their same age cohort. It is dangerous to their health. Again, because of the high rate of dementia as the baby boomers are aging, there aren't enough individual therapists to do all of that work. There also are caregivers who live in remote areas who can't get to a therapist or some who can't afford it. So there are peer group organizations starting up, I think of Duet and Phoenix, that do this sort of thing where the trainer trains the trainer and they use paraprofessionals, that is, veteran caregivers who teach new caregivers. And so they have a support group in line. Again, this is in addition to individual therapy. I'm not against individual therapy at all. I'm just saying that the world has so many ambiguous losses right now that there aren't enough therapists to go around and some people can't afford it. So peer group therapy is very effective at the community level. And because caregivers themselves die at such a high rate before the person they're caring for, we need to mobilize those kinds of peer support groups for them. It's a health crisis right now. I agree with you on what you were saying earlier, what MFTs, one of their common factors is a good connector of people. So Many times a client, as we know, can learn a lot from a therapist, but learn more from somebody that is going through their own shared experience, their own loss. So having a group, as we know, can sometimes be so much more effective than even an individual or a family therapy, because these people have been cut off and you are reconnecting them back to others with maybe if not the same experience, certainly a relatable experience. It's, it's really a both and which you write a lot about. What great way to connect the disconnected. So we've talked about caregivers with dementia where the person that physically is there, but the person they loved is no longer there and how difficult that is. Another form that all systemic therapists face is that you mentioned you've also gone through in your personal life and helped people professionally with it is divorce as ambiguous loss. And I think sometimes people don't think about that, but it clearly is. What are your thoughts on that? It's a tough one because especially if there are children involved, the person you divorced or who divorced you keeps popping up 
picking up the kids, coming back and forth. And then the kids have graduation, various things going on, and you have to be at the same place. And it's essential that you keep a relationship with this missing uh, partner and also separate from them. So it's extremely difficult and it's extremely ambiguous because the lines and the boundaries aren't clear. But I must say that today I see many more divorced couples not having a war, which seemed to be the usual thing back in the 70s and 80. They can even remain friends, which is such a blessing for the children if that happens. So perhaps human beings are getting more mature about not having things go their way or having separations, having divorces, and they can do it in a more civil fashion. That, of course, is the ideal. I'll give you another one. Kids leaving home, going to college, launching, which we think is a good thing, but it changes the whole core of the family system. How do we help parents struggling with this ambiguous loss that are launching children, which we view as a good thing, but it's still a form of ambiguous loss? It is. And, and again, I say in my family, I grew up in the Depression and so on. When we went off to college, we were just put on a bus and set off and families were glad we had the opportunity to be in college. It's different now. And it is an ambiguous loss and apparently debilitating for some people. And it should be acknowledged as such. But as I wrote six guidelines for dealing with ambiguous loss based on meaning, mastery, ambivalence, identity, attachment, and new hope. And I would recommend to parents who are having trouble with their youngster going off to a job or to college to study those because one of the things that changes is your identity. Your whole identity may have been that of mom. And know that identity, while it's still true, is less needed. The child is somewhere else. And so you have to find a new identity for yourself, a new purpose in life, something new to hope for, instead of seeing that child every day. So it requires a transition in attachment and a new way to do it. And again, I would say this is not deep psychotherapy. But it is relational therapy, and psychoeducation can help here also with articles in the public papers and magazines about how to live once your kid leaves home. It happens after divorce. It happens after your children leave home. It happens after your spouse dies. Your identity changes. Your attachment changes. And things are totally different. Margaret Mead said, we have to change every decade. I believe her that in my lifespan, something different happened every decade that required me to review who am I, what's my purpose in life, how do I move forward with some fun and some hope. It's doable. It's doable. But you have to do self-reflection. Yes, and that's what keeps people vital and self-aware. And many times we as MFTs work with clients that are extremely talented and skilled, but at one point of their life, what has been adaptive later becomes maladaptive. For example, if you've over-focused on being a great parent, as we know that the parent relationship is very different than the couple relationship. How many times do MFTs see parents that have over-focused on the parenting, but haven't nurtured the couple enough? So when they launch the child, they have no sense of a couplehood and really feel lost. All of this is so relevant. And I 
I think now, again, breathing new life into your work, this more macro application. When we think of COVID-19, obviously the pandemic has changed so many things and ambiguous loss is applicable certainly to more than just family systems as we're talking about. It works on a social and a global level. In your own words and here where you can talk about your new book that I just finished that's great, how has the pandemic impacted your work and the scope of ambiguous loss? I was just overwhelmed when emails just mushroomed from people here in the United States, around the world, professionals and ordinary people saying, isn't this ambiguous loss? And indeed it is. And so I was literally asked by the public to think about this. And the ambiguous loss was the loss of feeling safe from the virus because we didn't know what it was or how to control it, the loss of freedom, the loss of being able to be physically with our loved ones, being shut in, even now we're not free to do as we please, but also the loss of family rituals like graduations and marriage and baptisms and funerals. When my husband died in 2020, there was no funeral. Five of us were there for a modest ceremony. And had it not been the pandemic, there might have been hundreds because he was well known. So there were losses of things that formerly meant something to us that we valued, like the rituals, like being with friends, like having the same routine every day, even if it involved going to the corner coffee shop. So Everybody can make their own list. And of course, we had clear-cut losses as well. They weren't all ambiguous. The loss of money, the loss of income, the loss of an apartment. These are things you can quantify. And so you had clear losses on top of ambiguous losses. So I believe we're a world in grief right now, but I worry that it's being pathologized by saying that there's severe mental health crisis. There is a severe mental health crisis in a minority of people, but the majority of people are upset with anxiety, with sadness, which are normal reactions to an abnormal situation. And surely the pandemic was an abnormal situation. And it goes on and on. I hope that we don't pathologize everybody, even though most people are anxious and sad and disturbed right now because we've had a major stressor, the virus, the pandemic. And right now, the political situation is upsetting. The shootings are upsetting. You said yeah. that so beautifully. It made me think you're right. This is a developmentally appropriate response to what is happening in the world. If people didn't react that way, I'd be more worried. But yes, it's exactly. But see, as systemic thinkers, which listen to this podcast, MFT has always thought that way. You have a world that pathologizes everything. And you just made me think again on this very isomorphic, more macro level that this is much more normal. And again, back to connecting people, everybody has experienced a, a loss of some form or another during this pandemic. And it is really this macro ambiguous loss. I think that's uh -huh. so interesting. And the other thing, the title of this book is the myth of closure. People throw that term around. Oh, I just need closure. They come, I come for closure. And I love your thoughts on this. So somebody that is not familiar 
with your take on this. Tell them why this term closure is really a misnomer in what we're looking for as far as coping with ambiguous loss. Closure is a perfectly good word when it comes to closing a road after a snowstorm or closing a store that goes out of business or closing a business deal. However, it's a very cruel word to use with human relationships. People who have lost somebody, if you ask them, they do not like the word closure because they want to remember the person they've lost. They have a continuing bond, which class and colleagues, K-L-A-S-S, colleagues wrote about, but people didn't catch on to it until currently. The grief experts now accept that position, that when you lose somebody, the bonds can continue, although they are different. I support that completely. And just that's on a rant and a rampage to get people and the media to stop using the word closure. It was a headline in my newspaper yesterday. But the family had gone to court and won their case against somebody who caused their loved one's death. So the reporter said they have closure. No, they don't. They have justice. It's a misnomer. And of course they want justice, but they will remember that person forever if they were attached to them. By the way, with ambiguous loss, the assumption is that there is attachment. So if you're attached to that person, you will not, if they are lost, forget them. You will remember them. And even if they are found, they have remains, like soldiers missing in action. Every now and then they find remains. After 9-11, still a third of the people have not had DNA evidence, but the rest did. But even then, they don't have closure with the DNA evidence. They have certainty. That's what they have. They have certainty that the person is dead, which is a good thing. It's a relief, but it's not closure. So we should get rid of the word closure when it comes to human relationships. And stop the absolute thinking. The ghosting now that some young people are using is, I think, coward's way out of dealing with the end of a relationship. It is closure. And it's an artificial way to try to end it. I think once you have had a relationship with someone, it always is a part of you, even if it was a bad relationship. Not that it influences you negatively. But you can't erase human experience. It's part of your patchwork quilt. It's part of who you are. It doesn't have to drive you, but it's part of your history. Back to what you were saying earlier, attachment theory goes so well with your work because the attachment remains even after the person or thing is gone. Yes. Yeah. But it's different. It is different, yes. We know they are gone. In the case of death, we know that there's been a transformation. In the case of missing, it's more confusing. And so we have to use those six guidelines to figure out how to deal with that murky relationship of divorced person coming back and forth, a weekly pick up the kids, a kid that went off to college, or even the extreme ones of somebody missing in a war, the Holocaust, etc. Those are harder, but still we have to carry on in a new way 
we have to carry on family life and our own life in a way that is not dependent on that missing person helping us or being there for us. And that's doable, but you don't have to forget them. So if we could change the lexicon as advocates and family therapists replace that word closure that should be outlawed after listening to you, what should we replace it with when we're educating the public and the media? They want certainty. They don't want closure. They want certainty. They want to know for sure if their loved one is dead or alive. And many people in our world do not have that. And yet, as you speak of resilience, and my experience working in Kosovo and Fukushima and the Ukraine and 9-11 and individual therapy, more people than not figure out a way to live without knowing. And they have relatively good lives in spite of this immense stressor. I could listen to you talk all day as though there's two questions I ask every pioneer and we're family therapists. Many people listen to the show. So you'd be surprised. I ask luminaries and model developers, what does both their, their family appropriation, their family of origin, their loved ones think about their work? And many times the model developer's family has very little knowledge of their resonance to the field and to the profession. I'm curious what your feedback, again, that kind of stoic Swiss background that you come from, what does your family think of your work and your contributions to our wonderful profession? I could say if it weren't for my parents, loving parents, good parents who offered to babysit for me, none of this would ever have happened. They were superb parents and took care of my children until I got home from the university. And like many immigrant parents, they want their kids to be better than they were. They want them to be educated. That was my parents. Now, my children and grandchildren, my grandchildren, they're all in the hard sciences, many engineers and making rockets for Mars and so on, PhDs. I love what they are, but they're all in the hard sciences. And so they tease me because I'm in the social sciences. And I say to them, and we have a loving good time with this. I say to them, wait until all of you engineers have a relationship problem. Then you'll come to a social scientist, to a family therapist, and we all have a good laugh about it. But I believe it's true. I'm glad for them. And they all want to go to outer space and do wonderful things. But I think family therapy and the social sciences, social workers, psychologists, all have a role to play in this very mass-reoriented society, which is really very good at it, for their human relationships. And that human relationships can be forgotten in the time of technology. So yes, I love my family. I learn from them. We have great times together. Now I'm the lone social scientist and surrounded by engineers who are going into outer space. You talked about the need to evolve and be self-reflective. I'll say at 88 years old, you are as sharp and as passionate as I'm sure you've been at any point of your career. I am curious your evolution in this decade of your 80s as you 
continue to do what you love and people it's cliched, but when you do what you love, it doesn't feel like work at all. But how have you evolved in this last couple of years of your life? Right now, I'm really trying to put in place in Phoenix, New York, and at the University of Minnesota here, a continuation of the teaching and training of ambiguous loss for therapists and researchers, because I truly do have to do less. And also, I want to do some traveling and things I like to do, just read a book or taking up Nordic walking or something else that might be healthy for me because I'm not very athletic. So I'm working hard to put that in place and it's happening. And what else? The books I've written are good for this transition. It's all written down. People can pick it up and start training if they want to, but I ask that they please use the readings. And there's only been one mistake so far. Somebody started teaching about ambiguous grief. That is an error, a serious error. There is no such term. It's ambiguous loss, and it leads to a unresolved grief, a frozen grief. So if people use the materials correctly, I just cheer them on with all my heart, and I'll go on a trip and down to Danube. I already have it planned. That's, that sounds amazing. Your writing is accessible. You do not have to be an academic. I think the best writers, well, they continue to write, which is also probably part of your magic that you have never stopped writing and sharing your own personal experiences to illustrate your points. And that makes you, as I said, authentic and credible. This is the toughest question for many pioneers, and it's the one I always end with, it is the legacy question, Pauline, is how do you want to be remembered in the field of psychology, family therapy, family stress? You are more than just a heading and a paragraphs in a textbook, although you will always be that, and not many people get that treatment. So that's wonderful, but that's what people can read about you. How do you want to be remembered? I really would like to be remembered as a theory developer. That's a title most often given to male scholars. And I would very much like to be known as a woman and a family therapist who developed a theory that proved useful worldwide across cultures and with varied kinds of ambiguous losses. That's what I'd like. I think people are going to remember you for that and much more. And I can't tell you what I honor it was to talk with you and you've inspired lots of theorists you've inspired a therapist and people struggling with their own loss as well so this was really special for me and i thank you so much for joining us on the amft podcast my pleasure thank you eli Eli, back with you, bringing to a close another successful season, our fourth of the AAMFT podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Pauline Boss. It's really honored to talk to you. Ambiguousloss.com. Find out all things Paula, including many great resources, including ambiguous loss training. There's a non-credit professional development training course. You can also see her upcoming speaking events. I'd like to point out the current book she talked about, The Myth of Closure, Ambiguous Loss in a Time of Pandemic and Change, where 
Pauline will identify vague feelings of distress caused by ambiguous loss, losses that remain unclear and hard to pin down and thus have no closure. It's helped a lot of people as they grieved through the pandemic, and it provides many strategies for coping, encouraging us to increase our tolerance of ambiguity and acknowledging our resilience as we express normal grief, as she said in the interview, and still look into the future with hope and possibility. And that's what I like to look into the future with, and the future is bright. If you're a systemic therapist, AMFT has a lot to offer. Please check out amft.org. As always, drop me a line. Eli at NorthstarCounselingCenter.com. You can get a hold of me also at Eli Karam. That's E-L-I-K-A-R-A-M.com. Find out everything's going on. My new book that came out with soon-to-be president-elect of the AMFT, Dr. Adrian Blow on Common Factors, where we distill down the best therapist tips, how to maximize your client system strengths, how to build an alliance, how to repair an alliance after a tear, how to tap into hope, much like Pauline talked about today. We've gotten really good feedback on it and it's imbibing to the spirit of this podcast. So if you want to know more about me, you check that out. Also big things coming in 2023. As many of our professionally younger listeners prepare for a license exam. I want to be able to help you out on that as well. You can help me out. Give me suggestions, people you want to hear from, topics that all systemic therapists care about. You can follow the conversation on Twitter. AMFT is at the AMFT. I'm at Dr. Eli Live. Have a great holiday season with your loved ones. Until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic. Stay systemic.